Robert, the organ tuner, gave us an incredible tour of that facility. Um, when we came out of there, my heart was just burning that we hadn't really had opportunity to talk to, to anyone about Christ and just really pray and said, God, give us an opportunity to, to talk to someone. Um, but it wasn't to win an argument, to plant seed, because I knew we had about 25 minutes and we were heading across the street to the Museum of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Church um, where they had the history of their, um, um, of their church. So we walked into this. Um, facility, we made our way following the line where you should go, and we were immediately met by um, an older woman who was the host, and she wa- was walking with us and pointing us to the, the exhibit that talked about him um, being Joseph Smith and the golden plates that he received, and she's, she's going on and on about it, and so we um, started to engage her um, gently in conversation. And as we're going back and forth, I ask Alan to read um, Galatians 1, 8, and 9. This is what it says. But even if you were, even if um, we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Again, as we said before, so now I say to you, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Now, what Mormons believe is that Moroni, the angel Moroni, appeared to Joseph Smith and gave him the golden plate. So that's exactly what Paul's talking about in Galatians. So I said to her, is this not really another gospel, though? Because they really want to sell themselves as a, as a Christian faith. And she says, oh, no, it's not another gospel. Uh, I said, well, actually, it really is. Because you're stating and you're believing that um, the goal of Mormonism is to become a God, and yet the Bible teaches that there's one true God. There's only one God. Isaiah 44, 45, and 46 have throughout there, there's one God, there's not another God, there are no other gods. I alone am Savior, there is no other gods. I said, so number one, you're believing in multiple gods, and, and the Bible teaches there is one God. And then I said to her, secondly, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is God the Son, that he had no beginning, that he's supreme, that he's eternal, and you're saying that he had a beginning, that he was created. And then I said the third point that shows is really another gospel, which isn't really a gospel, is you're trusting in works to get to heaven. Um, works and baptism for you to have standing before God, and the Bible says it's not through anything that we can do. At that point, she said, you really need to talk to the Mormon missionaries in the front. I can't answer your questions, um, which we didn't have time to, to, um, t- to talk to her. Um, we had to catch a plane. A couple of weeks ago, I um, spoke with a uh, young lady that was interested in membership. And um, as our procedure is that we'll ask, you know, how, you know, um, what is your relationship with God? Because we want people to just know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And she was giving a, a works answer for salvation. And, um, and then we talked about who Christ was and didn't really have a grasp as to who Jesus Christ was. Um, understanding that he died on the cross for sins, but not understanding who he was. And that's so important that people get that because if they have a false view of Jesus that he's God, then who is this person that's dying on the cross for our sins? We don't understand that. And it's important to put it all together and um, joy to, to hear and see that she's accepted Christ as her Savior. In fact, she's even here tonight. Um, um, but the joy is we get into the scriptures and we want to we look at the person and work of Christ. And we want to, to outline that as, we, as we're, we're working through that this, this, this truth that Jesus Christ is God the Son, defense of the deity of Christ, it really must be the cornerstone of our faith. 
Um, and we have three others or whatever they might be, but it's a major cornerstone that we have in faith in Jesus Christ. And Christ thought it was a key area because he continually would say, well, who do you think Christ is? And that's the key question that was asked to the disciples and many people. What do you think of Christ? And I think we have to be able to defend who Christ is, and it's key that we can explain it. Um, don't just say, well, let me look it up online. And we may have to get answers. We may not always have them, um, but just simple Bible facts if you could turn to us. And we want to look at just four places in the Gospel of John. There's a boatload of places in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is written to defend the deity of Christ. Who is Christ? Is to address that. We're just looking at a few key places, but in reality, we could... this then can be again a three-month series if we were to be on this subject. But turn with me, if you're not there already, to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this gospel of John begins, and he's intentionally trying to make a connection back to Genesis. Um, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I think it's a conscious reminiscence of those words. And John's writing about a new beginning, a new creation that God has put together. He's using words that that are familiar to the first creation. In fact, if you look throughout here, he uses the words life, light, and darkness in verses 1, 4, and 5. That's key back in Genesis. Um, But he uses the word, in the beginning was the word. And this is very, very important that we catch this. And I, forgive me if we're, we're a little technical, but if I can gra- grasp it, I'm sure you can. Um, in the beginning was the word. And this word was is important that we, we get the meaning of it. It's not referring to a place in the past that had a beginning. Um, if, I was, if I were to throw this, okay, I threw that, that would be in the aorist tense. It's past completed action. I'm done with it. But if I was somehow to, to speak of something that's continuous in the past, it keeps being repeated. It doesn't refer to a beginning point, but it's referring to activity in the past. That's the tense we have here, the imperfect tense. It's activity in the past. It's something that's continually going on. It's repeated. It's continued. Um, the verb is referring to, in the beginning was the word. So the word is talking about not having a beginning like an aorist tense. It's the imperfect. It's continuous in the past. In the beginning was the word. So when he addresses the beginning of God's creation, the word was in existence already. That's what he's communicating here. That's what he's getting across. The word continually was. So he's speaking in the beginning. And he's tying in intentionally Genesis 1. The word was already there. He didn't have a beginning point. So when God began creation, creating things, the word was already there. So thus the word doesn't, doesn't have a beginning. So he's speaking of this, of an eternal, unchanging being. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Okay, so in the past, the word and God, two separate beings, and it's saying that the the word's with God. So before creation, there you have these two persons that are together, and the word was, was with God. Not only did the word exist in the beginning, but the word existed in the closest intimate connection with the Father. And the word was with God in that, in that intimate role. And then he says something that can, 
Nothing higher can be said. And the word was God. Doesn't say, and God was the word, because then it's just defining a different aspect of God, but it's defining a separate person. And the word, the word who was with God, the word was God. And it's that same imperfect tense, that continuous action in the past. It didn't have a beginning point. So he's speaking of the word, and he's affirming that the word is God. And this is staggering. And, and it's even more staggering when we get it that it's written by a little Jewish boy that happened to be passionate in monotheism. That there is one God. They're raised on the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That in his Jewish pride, he would cling to monotheism. Well, he's able to write this, not giving an inch on that ground, that he still understands there's one God. I'm not claiming or writing this verse, John says, talking about the word like there's a separate God, as Mormonisms might teach. No, the, 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 word, the word is God, but as whole outline in this, in this great gospel, but the word is, is one. He's one with God. So John is driving home this point by stating the word who was with God. He's showing that he's working within his monotheistic framework. But move on. Verse 3. Um, All things were made through him, through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I mean, that's, that, that's a crushing verse to every cult that's out there. No, he wasn't made. He didn't have a beginning because the word made everything. And there was not one thing out there that was made that the word didn't make. So we can't say Jesus made everything except himself. No, he made everything. But he drives on. You might say, well, who is the word? He tells us in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. This one is full of grace and truth. So he's focusing. We have seen him. This word took on flesh. The word came down. John's hammering home Christ's humanity also. It's, It's that fascinating subject, the God man. He's both God and man. That, that he's 100% God, but he took on humanity. He was 100% man. So he's not limiting or minimizing his manhood. But he says the word became flesh. He, all that was in him, Colossians 2.9, in him dwelt all of the Godhead bodily. Everything dwelt in him bodily, but he came to this earth. And he drives on. He was full of grace and truth. Verse 16 um, we receive grace upon grace, 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen, the God, seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He's made him known. So he came through Jesus Christ. So the word identified clearly is Jesus Christ. So in the beginning was the word. He continually existed prior to creation. And the word was God. The word was with God defining his essence and who he is. But let's move on down through John's gospel. We looked at 5, 18, and 19 last week. Let me jump into John chapter 8. John chapter 8, 23. I want to look at 23 through, um, through the end. Again, gospel of John, he's writing to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? I mean, who is he? Um, as he's explaining he's going to differentiate 
between man and between Christ. And let's pick it up in verse 23. 22, uh, so the Jews said, will he kill himself? Where am I going? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. These Jews were members of the human race. Um, They were earthy. They were earthlings, so to speak. Jesus is zeroing in on the fact that he is not as they are. He is not like them. They differ in their essential being. He says, you are of the world. I am not of the world. He comes from above. He is not of this world. So he's stating that his being is different order. And there's, thus if they were to pursue him when he leaves, it'll be futile because they're not going to find him. He's not of earth. But verse 24, one of the great statements he makes, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And that, that is, that's, that's the same words that are used of before Abraham was I am. And all of the seven I am's in the, in the gospel of John. He's stating to them, I am he. I am the one. But it's the words I am that drives them crazy. As we'll see in John 10 that they try to, try to kill him. So they're understanding what he's saying, but they're not accepting what he's saying. And they're struggling with that, and they're fighting him on this. In fact, let's drop down to to verse 57. And if you look at this later, between 23 to 57, some six times he refers to the relationship between him him and the Father. Son, Father. So it's continually that relationship that's expressed. He's talking about his divine sonship. But we come to 57. And he says in 57, um, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw and was glad. So he refers to, to Abraham would see my day. Abraham would look down thousands of years down the road and he looked forward to the one that would come. That's what he's referring to. And they're really confused and they say, what, what in the world are you saying? You're not even 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? I mean, they're looking at Christ and they start to do the math. Wait a minute. You know, he's, he's not even 50. How's he talking about Abraham? Abraham lived thousands of years ago. They're, they're just not getting it. How will he respond? Will he, will he retract his, what he implied in verse 56? Because he said in verse 56, he's implying, if, you know, if I do not, you know, you have not known him, you have not known him. If you would say you know him, you would be a liar, but I know him. He's saying that he knows him intimately and who he is. Is he going to back off of that? Is he going to say, listen, you guys are totally misunderstanding me. You're not getting what I'm saying. No, he drives it deeper. And he says in verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What is he claiming there? What is he claiming in 58? What? Before Abraham was, I am. Is he claiming to have lived just a couple years before Abraham? So really he's like, he's found the secret to old age? It's really, he's referring to his eternal existence and we get to tie in with the I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He's making an intimate tie-in to Exodus 3, 14. I'll I'll say that more in a moment. But look what it says here. Um, Before Abraham was, I am. 
was, again, it's, it's, it's a, he had a starting point. It's, remember I gave you that illustration that Eris tense me is it's past completed action. I threw the remote. So it's referring to before Abraham was. Abraham had a starting point. It's not continuous action in the point, but he uses a tense to show that he had a starting point. So before Abraham was, before he had his starting point, you see what he says? I am. Notice he doesn't say I was because that would mean he had a starting point just happened to be before Abraham. But he uses the present tense before Abraham was, I am. The scripture, God's gospel, specifically, unashamedly, drives home the point of the essence of Jesus Christ and who he is, that he's God, the, God himself. It's clear from the tense of these verbs that Jesus is talking about his eternal existence, that Christ didn't have a beginning point. The I am is, is continuous nature before Abraham was I am. And I mentioned last week when looking at John 8 that um, remember the um, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint translates Exodus 3.14 here with the same um, Greek words, ego, me. I, I am is a little translation. That's the way um, they translated it. And Yahweh, the name Yahweh, who should I say is sending me when he says in the burning bush? And he says, well, just tell them that I am, I am is sending you. So here Jesus is making the connection intimately that he is the I am. He's the Yahweh. He's the self-existing one. Before, before we move on, any questions that have to be addressed real fast? You know, I've had talking to Jehovah's Witnesses over the years, and they'll say, that's not at all what he was saying. And, and I, 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 my comment to them will be, we need to then put ourselves in the shoes of the first century people. What did they understand Jesus to be saying? They pick up stones to kill him. Because they, and as they say in other places, they think he was committed blasphemy. So who are we better to interpret what Jesus is saying than the first century Jews? And Jesus never corrected them. says, oh man, you, you are so getting it wrong. No, that's not at all what I'm meaning. Before Abraham was, I am. Let's move to our next key passage in John, John chapter 10. Let's begin in verse 24. In John 10, 24, um, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you um, keep us in suspense? If you're Christ, tell us plainly. Um, so, you know, you just need to, to tell us, who, who are you? I mean, they don't think he's telling them clearly. They just want him to come right out. They, they, they rejected what he's saying, but, but, but tell us who you are. Are you the one? Then he gets into an interesting discussion that until I studied it, I, I never put it all together until this time around, which is, is pretty sweet. Um, my sheep, verse 27, hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. What is Jesus claiming in this verse? <clears throat> my sheep hear my voice, I know them. Um, no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. What is he saying? I give unto them eternal life. What is he claiming? Go ahead, Carl. He's chosen them. Okay, he's chosen them, okay. And he's not only chosen them, but what? We like that doctrine called, it begins two words, begins with eternal. Eternal security. But there's more involved. Our security can't be eternal 
unless the one that's making a promise is what? What? He, okay, he's got to be eternal, but keep going. He's got to be pretty strong, right? Like, like what? Like all-powerful. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. So he's saying that he's giving those that follow him eternal security, but it's not any good that if he's a weakling that's existing throughout eternity, but he's saying that he is the strongest. No one will snatch you out of my, my hand. Not my father's hand. He says out of my hand. So he's making a claim to have almighty power. Right? Am I wrong on that? He's making a claim that he has the greatest power in the world. No one will snatch you out of my hand. Then he links that to the Father, and he says in the next verse, my Father who gave them, he's greater than all. No one is able to snatch him out of the Father's hand. He's saying no one's snatching him out of my hand, no one's snatching him out of the Father's hand. I mean, what are we seeing here? It's equating, it's equality. God the Son is all, all powerful. God the Father is all powerful. And just in case they missed it, he drives it home in the next verse, I and my Father are two. Is that what it says? Oh, no. <laughs> are one. I and my Father are one. Do we, do we get what he's saying there? I, I, boy, I don't know why I can remember this conversation, but we're living on 419 North Apple Street in Dunmore, Pennsylvania. The year is 19, it's got to be 83 or 82. And we're loading up to head to Parsippany, and there they are walking around the streets. One of my earliest conversations with Jehovah Witnesses. And I'm chatting with this person, and they're trying to say, oh, Jesus, is, he didn't make that claim. You know, he's just saying that, that, you know, he's one with the Father in the sense of having one with goals and one with purposes, and that they're on the same page. And how can we prove that's, that's false? How can we prove that Jesus isn't saying, I and my Father are one in a sense. I have God's purposes. I have God's desires. I have God's will. Because any good Jewish boys would do what on that statement? Come on, high five. Because we want to be one with God that way too. Right? Is that true? But that's not what they do. They want to kill him because he's not saying that he has one an ideology with God, but they sense that he's saying more than that, that he's one in essence. In fact, they're going to even accuse him of blasphemy. Look, look down. And they go to pick up stones, verse 31. And Jesus said, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? He's questioning, why are you stoning me? You know, and they say, well, it's not your works. We don't have a problem with your works. We, we see your many good works, and we see that, that, that they're good, but we have a problem with what you're saying, and they say that you're committing blasphemy. So they're not, they don't have a problem with his works. They have a problem with his words, okay? Not his works, so they're good. They can't dispute that, but his words. It's not for you a good work that you're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself to be God, um, you know what they never considered? Was it true? Is he really one with the Father? We see his works, but they didn't have in their framework where they could have a plurality of oneness. They didn't understand that concept. 
And so they wanted to kill him, and we get down to 38 and 39. Um, again, they sought to, to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. They just, they just want to execute him. They want to, they want to kill him. Let's move to John 14, and the next key passage in the Gospel of John. John 14, I really should begin in verse 33 of, of chapter 13. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I am to the Jews, so now I say, where am I going? Um, you say, where am I going? You cannot come. By the way, we're not addressing any of the I am's. I was really torn to make that my uh, our, our lesson for tonight, but it would have been futile because how do you address the seven IMs in 35 and a half minutes? Um, can't be done. Um, so here we are. Verse 33, so Christ brought up the point that he's leaving and they're lost in that. They were expecting an earthly kingdom and, and, you're, and you're leaving. They're confused and they're not able to connect all of the dots. It's not fulfilling their expectations and their hearts are aching and they don't want him to leave. And so they start to ask questions and they, they really want to be with him and go with him. And we see in John 14, the, the, or I should say the end of John 13, little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will say, uh, where am I going? You cannot come, a new commandment. By this all people will, will know. And so the verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Uh, Jesus, why can't we go with you? Peter wants to know where he's going and, and can we come? And then he steps down into chapter 14. He, he's comforting them. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. But we get to the key verse in verse 5 and 6. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And he, and, and he just comes right out and says, we don't, we don't get it. We don't, we don't get the way. We want to be with you. Jesus' words here in defending his, his personals are stunning in what he says. He now gives them the way to the Father. And then he shows that indeed they have seen God. But look at what he says when Thomas says, Lord, we, we, want, to know, we want to know the way. How do we get to the Father? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So as he's thinking of some um, eternal transport, Jesus is, is speaking, it's through me that you get there. It's not we're going to get on some Elijah-like chariot and, and shoot into the heavens. No, or, or um, um, that was Enoch, wasn't it? I was off a little bit. Um, but, you know, we're not going to get into that, you know, be taken away or, or like Elijah. Um, we're, going to be, we're going to be victorious and we're going to be here. It's through Jesus Christ. But look at the words that follow in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That is incredible words. Father, Jesus, we want to go with you. You know, how can we get to the father? Then he spells it out clearly for them. If you have known the father, you would have known me. If you would have seen me. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, it's enough. And Jesus comes right out and says in verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He spells it right out for him. If you, you want to see the Father, you want, you want to see God, if you have seen me, you have seen him. That is pretty bold. The only person that would say that would be a liar a lunatic, 
were the real deal. And Jesus was the real deal. You disciples yearned to see him. You know what they didn't get? What didn't the disciples understand regarding Jesus? What didn't they get? Why he came? That's right. But let's even take one step before that. Who he was. They didn't understand who he was and why he came. They weren't getting it that we have seen his glory. They would get it later. We have seen his glory. We saw his glory as he healed, as he brought the dead back to life. We saw a glimpse of his glory, three of them, on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw him, but at this point, they weren't getting it. I want to pick out one key word back in verse 9. Um, Jesus said, have I been with you so long and still you don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This word seen, it means to see, to notice, to recognize, to understand. You know it or you're familiar with its meaning in John 20, um, what is it, John 20, 28? Um, no, John 20, verse 8. When Peter and John run into the, into the empty tomb and Peter, you know, is confused, but John, it says, he sees and believes. It's the same word there for see. It sees means to, to see, to understand, to comprehend. And that's how he was able to believe. He saw, he put it all together, he got the reality of the resurrection, and he believed. So here Jesus is saying back here, um, whoever has seen me, whoever has, who understands, whoever comprehends it, he has seen the Father. They would get that eventually, but just not that evening. Um, I want to get down to verse 28. So let's say that someone um, is showing you, um, maybe it's a worker, it's a co-worker, and they said, you know, you, you're a Trinitarian, you believe in uh, this, this idea of three persons but one God, and I was studying the Bible a little bit, and here's, here's something to prove you're wrong. Um, verse 28, Jesus Christ says right here that his Father is greater. Um, if you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So right now, you know, you're a co-worker, and we have about two minutes to be on this because I want to finish. Um, but he says that proves that your theology, your thinking is wrong. That's Jesus Christ is admitting right here that the Father is greater, so he's inferior to the Father. And he must have had a beginning then. I mean, he's inferior. He can't be the eternal God because he's less. How would you answer that? If you were on the hot seat up here. Any thoughts? Anybody want to take a stab? I mean, Jesus Christ says it, that the Father's greater. I think you're right on. You said it too quickly, though. <laughs> you, have to add, you know, greater doesn't mean better, right? Um, positionally, let's say that... Um, Let's say that Kevin and I, you and I, started a business. It's a scary business, right? <laughs> but let's say that we're in a dream world. We're starting a business and this financial services or whatever we're running that requires us to be in suits. But because we're just a startup, we, can't, we don't have extra money to hire someone. So I wear on Thursday my jeans and I'm scrubbing the toilets and doing all of the work while you're doing in your, in your fine suit 
and addressing service people that come in and so forth. And you happen to step out and I'm walking through and my jeans carrying a bucket of whatever is in the bucket and a person looks at me and says, oh, sir, um, can you direct me to the boss? Well, you see, I'm every bit the boss as you. We're equal. We both put in 50-50. But just because my position, the way I'm dressed, looks like I'm not equal to you. Your position as running the place looks greater. And I think of that when I, I think of at that time Jesus Christ in his humility, in his incarnation, walking on earth and encased in, in human flesh. Every bit of the Godhead bodily resin in him, he did not give up one attribute, not one iota. They were all there. He just didn't use, express the freedom to use them as led by the Spirit. But all of his attributes were there. He's in this low estate. In fact, it's Hebrews 2.9. That says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He's made lower than the angels. He's made low. And if at that moment we could have ripped aside the heavens and peeked into the heavens, we would see God sitting on his throne, the glory beaming forth, and the seraphim, the cherubim, hailing, shouting that heavenly anthem, holy, holy, holy. No one's doing that on earth. So disciples, you should be happy that I'm going back to the Father who's greater. He's in that heavenly position. I'm no longer going to be down here being tormented and punished and ridiculed and mocked and scorned. I'm going back to where I belong. I believe that's the, the setting of John 14, 28. Um, John 20, and then I want to conclude how Thomas, is, uh, how Thomas concluded by looking pretty quickly at the word worship used um, throughout the New Testament. John 20, 28, um, about two years ago, two and a half years ago, uh, Brent, you and I were in Panama, and when you were over at the, the uh, counter with Ray getting securing the bus, there was a Jehovah Witness rack that uh, was there, and I was calling me, and so I was looking at it, um, but there was no attendant there, but once he saw a possible convert, he came running over real quickly, and uh, I, I said to him, I, I said, I have to be gone, but I have one question for you. I said, would you answer John 20, 28 for me? And I opened up my Bible and read him this verse. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He immediately tried to go to other verses. I said, sir, no, please, would you, we're going to stay here first. And he looked at it and then brought up other verses. I said, no, no we're going to stay right here. And I wrote down his comment, and we, we did stay there. He looked at it, and I said to him, that's a pretty powerful verse, isn't it? And his comment back to me was, yes, yes it is. Nothing he could say. Because J.W. used to say that Jesus Christ had a beginning, that he's not God. Here is Thomas. Thomas, the one that doubted. Thomas, the one that is, that is spitting and fighting. He says, I am not going to believe on him. Unless I could put my, my hands in his very palms, into his side, I will not believe. And Jesus steps into his presence. And lovingly, generously, graciously says, here, Thomas. Thomas didn't need to do that. Thomas believed, and he said, my Lord and my God. Don't let anybody also say to you while he's looking away, like, my Lord and my God is what one JW said to me. No, Thomas said to him, 
my Lord and my God. You know, as we think of, of, of Thomas, um, I want to close words with real, real briefly, if I may. Um, let me put Thomas off on a hold. I'm going to come back to him. I want to look at a word, because really what Thomas is doing is worshiping Jesus Christ. I want to look at one word, worship, how it's used, um, just briefly. And Steve's just going to put a few of the references on. We're going to run through it. But it's the Greek word proskuneo. And this is a tremendous argument, just this one word. And I, when, you know when I say argument, I don't mean winning, you know, discussing with the lost. Um, the Bible clearly presents that Jesus Christ is God the Son. And may we know how to explain that and defend that with cults, but with people that may doubt, oh, Jesus Christ was just a man. Well, whether they accept our holy scriptures or not, the Bible claims that Jesus Christ is God the Son. The first reference... I want to look at is this word worship. It's used 18 times in the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus received worship. Okay, Matthew 2, verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when he rose and have come to worship him. And then the next time it's used in Matthew 4 is when Jesus is talking to, let me go back on, um, talking with Satan. Satan be gone, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So here in Matthew 2, Jesus received proskuneo and then he says to Satan, only, only God was to be worshipped. Proskuneo uses the same word. That's important because Jesus received proskuneo, worship, not, not a lesser word and he says that only God was to receive that. And here are just a couple of the references that you could look at. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. This word knelt is the same word. It's the word worship. Um, it's in Matthew 9, 18. While he was saying these things, behold, a ruler came in and knelt. Again, it's the same word. Um, the word worship. Matthew 14. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Um, Matthew 15, 25. She came and knelt before him. But I want us to jump to in John 9. I want us to jump to Acts 10.25. Here is Peter. Cornelius comes to him and bows before him and worships him. What does Peter say? No, no, no. I am only a man. No, don't, don't do this. I didn't put the next verse on there. Sorry. Um, I'm only a man. You're not to worship me. I'm just a man. You see, Jesus never said that. Never does he turn a person down when they bow before him. He always accepted it. And then we see the reference, I didn't write this down, um, Revelation 13, verses um, 4, 8, 12, 15, people are worshiping the beast, proskuneo. They're worshiping the beast. It says in the next chapter, 14, an angel announces, anyone that proskuneo, worship the beast, they are eternally doomed. They're judged. So you see, angels weren't to be worshiped, men weren't to be worshiped, Christ says only God was to be worshipped and he received worship. You know, that's how Thomas ended his life. He ended his life worshipping the one that he came to understand who he was. Um, tradition, uh, we believe it's correct. Uh, tradition has him traveling act actually up to the subcontinent of India and being a witness there and being a testimony, preaching the gospel, leading many to Christ. God used him mightily, eventually was martyred for his faith because he believed in the one that changed his life. One that was once downing Thomas, that was cowering behind doors. Once he came to understand who Jesus Christ was, I saw his glory. 
I walked with him. I saw all that he did. Once he understood who Christ was and what he had done for him, he was willing to give his life and be spent for him. So, so what's the application for us? When we understand who Jesus Christ is, when we understand what he's done for us, may we worship him. And we worship him by, by giving all of our time, our passions and our desires. And it, it could be a, a umpteen directions it could go. As we're worshiping him and we're about to get into an argument with somebody. No, we're going to be, we're going to be like Jesus. Be selfless. We're going to imitate him. I'm going to worship him by, by, by me being wise and not talking right now. Or I'm going to worship him by, by my thought life. I'm going to worship him how I spend my money. I'm going to worship him what, what I yearn for in life. I'm going to worship him by the first thing that comes in my thought because I've been just filling it with him and his desires. Isn't going to be something fleshly or selfish? And on and on we could go. Theology, it's not meant to be something stuffy that the academians will pull out of the closet and smoke. I mean, dust goes all over the place and you're sneezing because they pulled out the theology books. It's meant to change lives like it did Thomas's, that he was willing to go to, to another continent far away from home to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be as faithful as we step into Mission Month because we know who he is and what he's done for us. God, I want to be used of you to share the gospel and tell others about Jesus Christ. God, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. God, may we not get over who do men see that I am. May we not get over who Jesus Christ is. In the beginning was the word, the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The one that was worthy of Thomas's worship, my Lord and my God. God, you're worthy of, of our worship and our adoration and our submission. God, may we get out of the, the ruling phase as, as Thomas did, demanding that he wouldn't do what he wouldn't do until he saw Jesus. And once he saw the supreme one, he bowed in submission. God, may we see you daily in bowed submission. I pray in Christ's name, amen.